My name is Deb. I'm a real alcoholic. Hi. My sobriety date is March 15, 1987. My home group is the Bay Street Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's in a little town called Beaufort, South Carolina, which is an island on the coast right above the Georgia line. We were holding our breath due to the storm coming at us. And um, it's one of those things where it's it's an absolute travesty that it's turned towards Florida. Um, it makes me very, very sad, and I'm praying for them. You know, but I was really glad that it didn't hit my home. It's just it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's going to go somewhere, and it's going to be ugly. Um, but I, I'm currently I'm writing the, um, the logistics operations plan for Beaufort County, and it's not quite done. And that's the plan that we'll use to recover if we... Um, you know, if an earthquake happens or if a hurricane comes on land or something like that. And um, my deadline's not for two more weeks. And I said, you yeah, know, we can't have a storm yet. We're just not ready for this. It's just not time. Um, it is always an honor, an honor and a privilege to do anything I'm asked to do at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is absolutely my least favorite thing to do at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but I do what I'm asked to do. And Yogi was, was so kind and called and asked me if I wanted to come have the best time I would ever have at an AA convention. And I said, well, how in the world can I possibly turn that down? And he said, well, then you're coming to home of Louisiana. And I had to ask him what he said about seven times because of that thick Cajun accent. And I was finally able to get all the information from him and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. I've had a great time. Um, I got in yesterday afternoon and Tammy and Robin picked me up at the airport, and they were just absolutely beautiful, beautiful, strong, recovering women, and I was, I was just thrilled to be in their presence. Thank you very much. And they took me into New Orleans yesterday, and they fed me lunch at Chef Paul's Kitchen, I think, and um, I had some jambalaya that didn't look like anything I'd ever had, and it was really good. And, um, and I was hanging out here last night, and I've seen people that, I, that I've seen over the last several weeks. Um, Cajun Joe and Father Peter and Yogi and I, we all, and Hugh, Hugh's here somewhere in the room, we were all together in Jackson, Mississippi a couple of weekends ago, and we had a great time, and Yogi fell off the stage, and he asked him about that later. Um, and it's, it's just been really neat to reconnect with some, with some people that I know, and I've been able to make some new friends and spend some really high-quality time having good discussions about God and recovery, and and the gifts that I've been given and, and listen to you guys share the gifts that you've been given with me and it's just been amazing. I'm here to tell you a little bit about what it was like for me, what happened and what it's like today. And I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my best at that. I um I was born in a in a in a really small blue collar town in northeast Ohio, right outside of Akron. And, um, you know, my, my father's people, they all come from West Virginia, and when the coal mines closed, they all came over to Ohio looking for factory work, and that's what he and all of his brothers and sisters did. And uh, they worked at a factory called Rubbermaid, and, uh, which is in a little town called Worcester, and I grew up in a little town called Britain. And, and in that little town, you know, the, the people that I knew, my, my friends, their parents also worked in factories, and it was just a real, you know, hard-working blue-collar town. And um, and all the parents that I knew, everybody worked really hard during the day. They came home and they all carried beer underneath their arms as they walked in the door and they started to drink the moment the moment that the door closed behind them. 
And then, and then, you know, things began to happen in our home. And my dad, he would, you know, he would walk in about 3.30 or 4 till 4 in the afternoon. He'd have a 12-pack under his arm. He'd drink that by 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And then my sister and I would fight over who would get to crawl in the truck with him to drive down to the drive through to get another six-pack that he would drink then, you know, fall asleep or pass out about 8.30 or 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. And, um, and that's just what he did every day, you know, day in, day out. I did not have any idea that there was such a thing called social drinking. I, you know, I had never seen anybody in my life, you know, come home after work, have a drink and not have another. Or have a glass of wine with dinner. First of all, I didn't see any wine. It was all whiskey or beer. And I didn't know that people had just one or two. I mean, it just, I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I hadn't seen it. And, um, my father was a, was a real violent alcoholic. And today he's a very, very sick alcoholic. And I might talk about him a little bit later. But in my house, there were things that happened all the time that weren't right, and I was always scared. I was scared of you, I was scared of me, I was scared of my shadow, I was scared of noises, any noise, good or bad, because you never knew what was going to come next. I was absolutely terrified every moment that I was awake, and I, and I had dreams at night that didn't make any sense, so I was terrified in my sleep, too. So, you know, if you watched me walk down the street, you wouldn't know that I was terrified. You would think that I was angry, but you wouldn't know that I was terrified, because I was just ugly all the time. I was the kid who takes other kids home from school. And when I was nine years old, the only thing I'd ever been told about alcohol was that I wasn't allowed to have any of it. You know, that's, that's adult stuff and you're not allowed to have any of it. Well, that just wasn't going to do. I've always been a bit tenacious and, um, and I was going to figure out what that stuff was. And when I was nine, I spent the night with one of my girlfriends, and her parents had a bar in their basement, and we convinced her mom to let us sleep down there so that we wouldn't make too much noise and keep them up, when really it was our plan to go down and figure out what this alcohol stuff was all about. You see, I am not an alcoholic today because my father was alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic today because he was violent. I'm not an alcoholic today because I was scared. I'm not an alcoholic today because of all of the things. I'm an alcoholic today because I drank alcohol too much too often. My body got physically addicted to it, and I needed it. By the time I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous to function at all. That's what makes me an alcoholic today. And that night, I drank my first beer out of curiosity. I did not know that it was magical. I just knew I wasn't allowed to have any of it. And so that, that night was the night of first beer. It was my first drink, my first drunk, my first blackout. The next day was my first hangover. And it was also the first time that I could remember in all of those nine years where I wasn't scared. That stuff, you know, I had to choke it down because it tasted real bad and it burned all my, on the way down in my throat. I didn't have any, I still couldn't tell you the day when I was drinking. We were just taking random bottles off the shelf and just taking licks out of the, out of the necks of the bottles and this and that. And I, and I had enough of it that burned its way down and hit my belly and warmed me up and all of a sudden there was this warm, safe, fuzzy feeling that came over me. And all of a sudden my skin fit. And I was okay with you. You were okay with me. And the world made sense. I understood why this stuff was so important. I absolutely understood why this stuff, this stuff was so important. You know, my parents, they would fight. I mean, they would just, they, they would go at it all the time. And uh, my dad wouldn't beat my mom when we were awake. He would wait to do those kinds of things until after we were asleep. So I never saw him physically hit her, but I heard it. You know, for a long time I thought that my, that my mom's name was, you know, you've done because that's what he called her all of the time. And I thought, you know, I, I don't think she's dumb. I don't understand why he's saying that, because she's not dumb. I had, I had all of the confusion that a small child should have in circumstances like those. 
And one of the fights that they got into is my father tried to, try to join one of those animal clubs. We were talking about animal clubs last night with somebody. Somebody here belongs to the Elks. Well, he had tried to join the Moose, and before that he tried to join the Elks, and I think he even had a, he had a go with Eagles club at one point, I think. And every time my mom would get one of those letters in the mail, she'd say, if you're going to spend your life drinking, you're going to at least spend it with your family. Now, here's another point of confusion for me, because I didn't like him. He was always drinking, he was always drunk, and he was always just a jerk. And I thought, now, why on earth would you keep him home to do that? It just didn't make any sense to me. And what also didn't make sense to me is that after the first time I drank and I got that warm, safe, fuzzy feeling that came over me and all of a sudden I was okay, in my sin fit, I didn't understand why the minute he began to drink, he got worse. It fixed me, but he got worse. After that first night of drinking, I made, I made a decision. And the decision was this. I'm going to drink as much of that stuff as often as I can. I want to feel like that all the time. And if booze is what does it, let's go find it. So I made friends with all the, with all of the little girls in my in my class whose parents had bars in their basements. And there were a lot of them. And um, and I made friends with them and I and I made sleepover dates with all of them. And I and I never slept at home. I was constantly on the road sleeping at somebody else's house, drinking their parents' booze. And sometimes, the, you know, the little nine and ten-year-olds I spent the night with, they didn't have any interest in drinking. I'm not sure what that was about. They just knew how good it worked. You know, they would have drank too, but they didn't have any interest in drinking. And so I wait till they go to sleep, and I would sneak down their parents in their parents' basement into the bar, and I would drink. And you know, and that was the moment that I began building relationships based on how much bougie could get me. And it never changed until I got sober. I didn't drink a long time, and my drinking isn't isn't fun. You know, some people get up here and they tell you all kinds of really stories of huge ruckus and going to jail and wrecking cars and, you know, losing families and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff and sad stuff. And, you know, my drinking was constant. It was tragic. And it made me sad, remorseful, guilty, and shameful on a consistent basis. That's what drinking gave me once I came to. What it gave me in the first two minutes was a warm, safe, fuzzy feeling where my skin fit and I was okay with you. And you know what? It was absolutely amazing to me that I I could drink and get that feeling that would last about two minutes. And then I would spend all of my sober time being regretful and feeling shameful about the things that I had done, things that had happened to me, things that I had seen, and things that... I had participated in either with or without my own will making the decision to do so, which lasted a lot longer than two minutes. But I would go back to the bottle and I would look for that two minutes again. I still shake my head a little. And I know what I've got. I know what's wrong with me today. But that's how my drinking was. I never drank just a little. I never tried to control my drinking. Like I said, I didn't know that people had one or two drinks and just and put it down. My thing was, what was the point? You know, my tolerance, because I was so young and because my body physically, I was still in, in, in the, I think um, Burns is probably going to talk a little bit about the disease of alcoholism tonight. And because I was physically developing, I got addicted to alcohol very, very fast. You know, by the time I was 14 years old, I was daily drinking. By the time I was 15 years old and went to treatment, I hadn't drawn a sober breath for over six months. I mean, not a sober breath. 
I would wake up in the morning, I would find the stash because I had to learn. I, I did control my drinking a little bit. I always knew that I had to save myself about that much in the bottom of a bottle stuffed in a bush somewhere so that I could find it on my way to school and take the eggs off because I wouldn't be able to make it if I didn't. And I knew that when I was 14 and 15 years old when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school. That was the only, the only controlled drinking I ever did was to stop myself so that I have enough to get through the next day. Now, I, I wasn't a juvenile delinquent. I know. Think about the definition. You think, yes, you were. You were definitely a juvenile delinquent. But I, you know, but I really wasn't. My sister was a juvenile delinquent. She was the one that was in and out of juvie jails and running away and, you know, doing all that acting out stuff that Chris is talking about with her daughters today. My sister was doing all that, which worked really, really well. My sister was two years older than I was. She used dry drugs. I used alcohol. That way we didn't get into each other's stashes. And she kept all the focus on her because she was acting stupid. And so everybody paid attention to what she was doing. You know, she was one in and out of duty jail, not me. I was playing varsity sports. I was getting straight A's. I was running the pep club. I was president of my class. I was doing everything that I was supposed to do to be a successful 15-year-old. And I was drinking every morning. I was drinking at lunch. And I played volleyball games I don't remember. And when I played the alcoholism card later on to get out of trouble, everybody said, but you don't drink. And I thought, oof. You know, in my life, I was surrounded with people who saw what they wanted to see rather than what they believed. I'm sorry. People in my life who, who believed what they wanted to believe rather than what they were actually seeing. And that was a key component of my drinking. If anybody had looked at me and said, what's really going on with her? Why does she have that glassy look on her? And does she smell a little funny today? Because, you know, vodka comes out of your pores once you get saturated with it. And on that note, I, a friend of mine lives in Myrtle Beach, just south of Myrtle Beach in Polly's Island, South Carolina, and his name is Mac. And I met Mac about eight or nine years ago when I was doing some stuff up in Myrtle Beach. And Mac was a member of this fellowship, and he had about two years of sobriety when I met him, and he was 60-some-odd years old. And he had this, you know, pretty good-sized house on Polly's Island, and, and he had an open-door policy for me and anybody who knew me. You just, you just show up at my house whenever you want, and you sleep here. And so, you know, every now and then I would just show up at Mac's house and we'd go and we'd spend a weekend with Mac and check on him and I'd have to clean his kitchen because he'd just live like a pig. And, you know, and we, and we would hang out and we would have great fellowship and fun. And, and I moved away for, I moved from South Carolina to Florida for about five years. And, uh, while I was gone, things went wrong for Mac. And, you know, Mac never really finished the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I, I pulled into Mac's driveway about a year and a half ago after I got back to South Carolina. And I had three of my friends with me and we were on our motorcycles and I pulled in. And Matt came walking out to the front door, and he could hear us coming in, imagine that. And he came walking out, and he said he couldn't see. He, he came out, and his eyes were closed, and he said, my God, is that Deb? And I said, yes, yeah, sweetie, it's Deb. How are you? And he said, honey, don't come in here. I've been drinking for a long time. Things aren't good, and I'm not good. You don't want to come in here. And I said, I'm spending the night with you. You told me I have an open-door policy, and I'm here to spend the night. And he said, you don't understand. Things aren't good here. And I said, Mac, I don't care how things are. I love you, and I'm coming in. And I walked in, and that house was an absolute shambles. There were empty bottles of vodka bottles all over the place. And he had loaded guns in every room. And he said, baby, I'm just working on getting a little courage. He said, it's all going to be over soon. I said, not on my shift. And I said, boys, go get all these guns and empty them out. I said, we're staying for the weekend. I said, you don't get to do this. And what triggered that was the smell of vodka. You know, that man smelled. Who did he smell? 
and he wouldn't go to a hospital, and he wouldn't go to meetings because he had a resentment against Alcoholics Anonymous, and those people didn't do what they were supposed to do for me, and you know how we get. And he was going on and on and on, and I said, you know what, you don't have to go to see those people and those meetings up here. I said, you're coming home with me. I said, I'm going to run home. I live about three and a half hours south of him. I said, I'm going to run home. I'm going to get my car, and I'll be back for you. Will you come to my house, and will you let me detox you? And he said, well, sweetie, I just don't think that's a good idea. You see, I get real unhappy when I'm not drinking. And I said, are you happy now? And he said, well, that's not the point. <laughs> and I said, damn, I'll be back in a few minutes. I'm going to go get my car. I'll be right back. And so I went home, and I got my car, and I got one of the women that I sponsor, and, and we drove up to Mac's house, and, and we got Mac, and we took him home. And I, a friend of mine is a family physician in town, and, uh, and I took Mac over to see him, and he gave us a little detox protocol with pills and stuff. And, you know, I really... I know I got no interest in detoxing somebody with booze like they used to do in the old days. I'm just I don't know how to do that. So he helped us out with some medicines and you know, Max stayed three days. He finally stopped shaking and uh he wanted his truck back so that he could drive home, but his truck wasn't at my house and I found him walking down the highway. You know, he was going to find his truck because he just needed to go home because he needed a drink. You know? And I call him back every now and then just to see how he's doing. He says, Well, you know, it's ugly, but it ain't as ugly as the day you came. He said, I think that you saved my life. And I said, you know, are you going to come into Alcoholics Anonymous yet? And he said, nope, not yet. I just don't think I'm done yet. You know, we may lose that man, and, you know, that may be part of his story. And that's just the way that is, you know. But anyway, the smell of vodka. Let me go back to childhood. I am... Uh, my parents had gotten divorced when I was 12. You know, we finally were like, you know, hey, Mom. You know, Diane keeps running away. It's obvious that we don't need to be here. The man's violent. He's awful. We are powerless as kids. Can you get us the hell out of here? And she finally heard that. And so she packed us up and she moved us out and we, and we left my father. And um, and they got a divorce. But, you know, they weren't going to go down without a fight. And they got the longest divorce case in Wayne County history. You know, they went to court 13 times. And, um, and it was just absolutely crazy for a long time, which allowed me to drink the way I needed to drink because my mom wasn't paying attention to me. As long as I got straight A's and as long as I was playing sports, she wasn't going to pay attention because as far as she was concerned, I was fine. You know, my sister kept running away with help. My mom decided she was going to go out of town one night. She had gotten herself a boyfriend. I was 15 years old. It was right before Thanksgiving. She had gotten herself a boyfriend. She was going to go out and have, a, have an overnight date. And we just thought that was great. So I was supposed to stay here. My sister was supposed to stay here because, you know, my mom was a responsible parent and had arrangements made for us. And my sister and I looked at each other and we're like, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here. Now, see, here's part of my drink that I failed to mention. In order for me to drink the way that I needed to drink, I had to hang out with people who scared me. I had to hang out with people who had absolutely no, no morals left in their system whatsoever, and they thought that it was okay to buy a 14- or 15-year-old her own bottle of vodka on a daily basis. I hung out with people that thought that was okay. I hung out with people, and they just didn't talk about them. It was Deb's bottle. It was always sitting in the same place. I walked in. I got the bottle off the shelf. I popped the top. I threw the cap away. I sat with my back against the wall because, you know what, bad things were going to happen, but I at least wanted to know when it was coming, and that's the way I drank on a daily basis. And every morning when I came to, I prayed to God that I was in a blackout the night before because I didn't want those memories. You know, I was a blackout drinker, and I remember enough. Thank God for blackouts is all I have to say. Thank God for that. You know, there are days that I don't remember, and I know that really bad things happen during those days, and I don't want to know because the stuff that I remember is enough. But that's the way I drank, and those are the people that I drank with. And, and you know, I didn't associate with them when I was sober. 
you know, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say hi to them when I passed them on the street, and they wouldn't say hi to me. They didn't want to be associated. You know, but late at night when it was time for me to drink, they were all about having that. And, um, so anyway, my mom just had a chance to this overnight date, and my sister and I decided that we're going to stay at the house, and we're going to have over our drinking friends, our partying buddies. And, um, so, you know, I called these people that, <laughs> that, that scared me. I told my mom was going out of town and we could party at my house. And, and um, I don't know why they thought that, that was a good idea because they were grown. They had their own house. You know, but they thought it was a good idea to come over to ours. I'm not, I, you know, I'm still a little baffled by that. But they came over and instead of bringing me a bottle of vodka, they brought me a bottle of Jack Daniels and I hadn't really drank much of that before. And, and somebody said, you know, hey, you sure can drink a lot. And I said, well, yeah, I can. And they said, but I don't think you can drink this whole bottle of Jack Daniels. Now, you can handle vodka, but not Jack Daniels. And I said, watch me. And so, you know, I convinced to drink that bottle really, really fast. I went into a drunken stupor about an hour and a half after I started drinking, and I did not physically move for about four and a half hours. I was literally in a drunken stupor, curled up in a fetal position, sitting in the corner of my couch, and by the time my mom walked in at 1.16 a.m. on a red digital clock that was sitting right there, she had gotten in a fight with her boyfriend, and here she was. You know, she found her baby daughter sitting in every bodily fluid that I had. And I hadn't moved for a long time. And you know what? My mom, the next day, my mom did something very uncharacteristic. She grounded me. She punished me. Even though I told her one of the best lies I had ever come up with. I mean, I'm good at this stuff now. I was really good at it. And I had just conjured up some of the best stuff. So she just didn't buy it. So she grounded me. She, okay. She believed that I wasn't drinking. So she bought some of it. She believed that I wasn't drinking, but she believed that it wasn't my choice to be at home unattended. And that my intentions of not calling her to let her know that my plans had fallen through, well, that that was heartfelt, so I didn't want to interrupt her night. You know, so she bought half of it. So she believed that I wasn't drinking. She believed that I was just a victim of circumstance. And if you had people in your house that were this big and this mean, and they just wouldn't let me use the phone, then what was I supposed to do? I just decided I, I would just sit there, so I didn't move, and I was really scared, and, and on it went. It was just pathetic. And so she grounded me for a week, and what that meant in my world, if I was grounded, I couldn't walk that walk, I couldn't get in that car, I couldn't go to that house, I couldn't sit against that wall with my back, and I couldn't, I couldn't get that bottle. If I couldn't leave that house, I couldn't drink. Now, I had just been in a drunken stupor the night before. How bad do you guys think that I needed a drink the next day? I was shaking apart, and there was no booth left in that house. And so my mom and I, we got into a huge fight because I had to create some kind of circumstance to, you know, to be kicked out of the house at least for a few minutes. I'd watched my dad do it many times, and we did that thing. And um, and she told me to leave, and, and, and I, you know, it, it was bad. And she called the police, and it just got real ugly. And when she called the police, what happened is that my two worlds came together. You know, no longer was I this straight-A student class president on one hand and this, you know, <laughs> this daily drinking alcoholic on the other. Those two things inched, and they, and they overlapped. And people began to find out what I was really doing. And so I played the alcoholism card. You know, I've been, you know, I'm 33 years old. I was part of that, you know, generation where they were teaching us about drugs and alcohol and alcoholism and stuff when I was in school. And, you know, I was, I was part of this program called Teen Institute. You know, I was traveling around the county, you know, teaching um, middle schoolers about, you know, alcoholism and the family dynamics of the disease of alcoholism. And I was doing all that stuff with a hangover. And, uh, you know, but that's what, you know, popular kids who are just as straight A's did. And so that's what I was doing. And I was really sick all the time. And 
And when those two things came together and I knew that I was in a jam and everybody was mad at me, everybody at school was mad at me, everybody at home was mad at me, the people that I was partying with, they were mad at me because, you know, some of the people that were at my house were underage, imagine that. And, and everything was kind of coming together and I thought, man, I have got to figure out a way to get out of this jam. And not only do I have to drink every day, so being grounded or being locked up isn't an option, but I can't have these people mad at me because that meant that the microscope came out and somebody would try to figure out what it is I was doing all day long. And if that happened, they might catch me sneaking out at night, swimming down the side of the house on bed sheets tied together and going to drink. And I just couldn't allow that to happen. You see, being powerless has always been my problem. I was powerless over my father's alcoholism when I was a little kid, and I became powerless over my own alcoholism as an adolescent. And I was powerless over whether or not I could go buy my own booze, and so I had to pay higher prices for things. And all that stuff came together, and so I played that alcoholism card, and I said, I just think you all ought to send me to treatment. I think I'm probably an alcoholic, after I just convinced my mother that I hadn't been drinking. And so the counselors decided that was a good thing, and off I went. I couldn't go to treatment for two weeks, though. So I had I had affairs I had to get in order. I'm not real sure what affairs a 15-year-old has to get in order, but by God, I had things that I had to take care of before I left. I mean, they were going to keep me for over a month in this place, and I needed to get some stuff taken care of. And um, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, 1986, I had an admission appointment at Glen Day Hospital in downtown Cleveland. It used to be on 150th. And it did not occur to me, because I was playing this card to get out of trouble, it did not occur to me for several days that going to treatment meant that I wasn't going to be allowed to drink. It just never occurred to me. But a couple of days before Thanksgiving, you know, as it was inching and getting closer and closer and closer, I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. I think I made a significant error. Because, you see, I had reached that point that, that our book talks about, where I couldn't imagine my life without alcohol, and I couldn't imagine it with it. I had reached that point in my life where I was no longer bodily and mentally like my fellows. I was completely different. Drinking was something that I had to do, otherwise I'd shake apart, and I didn't have any interest in not drinking. And so I called up these people that, that scared me, and I... And I went over to get my bottle, and as I was standing there talking to them, I said, you know, so I've got one problem. And they said, what's that? And I explained them the circumstance about going into treatment and not being able to drink. And I said, but that's not really my problem. My problem is that, you know, I drink so much so fast that I pass out when I get almost to the end of my bottle. If you guys could come up with some kind of concoction of all of these other things that you do, all these little pills that you take, if you could come up with some kind of concoction that would keep me from passing out, maybe I could drink this a little bit more, and then I wouldn't have to wake up and go to treatment. And they said, all right, we'll give it a try. And so they gave me a little baggie, and it had about 10 pills in it, and they were all different colors. And I had a little prescription. I would take the yellow one and the pink one, and wait, you know, a little while and take the blue one and take the white ones. And, you know, and I was an alcoholic, and I was drinking a lot, and I, I got confused, and so I just kind of took them all at once. And, and uh, you know, and I... I came to the next day, and I was really angry because I came to. I was still alive, which means that it didn't work. So I called them up, and I, you know, I cussed them, and I said, look, you know, you guys got one thing to do, which is just, you know, I just want to stay active long enough to drink enough booze to kill me. You guys think you can handle that? And so they gave me another little baggie of pills, and they explained to me they were wrote down on a piece of paper, and, and, I, and I had this little concoction of pills, and it was the Friday night after Thanksgiving, and I was due in treatment on Saturday morning and I 
when I was drinking, I started taking those pills, and I tried to follow it the best that I could. And, you know, I came in, I came to, in Glendale Hospital on Sunday. I'm not real sure what happened to Friday or Saturday. But I came to Sunday night in Glendale Hospital, and I was in a room where everything was bolted down, and I was shaken, and I was sick, and I had thrown up on myself, and I was just an absolute wreck, and I was in complete and utter withdrawal. And they didn't believe in that time of detoxing adolescence because we just weren't that sick. You know, we hadn't drank enough, long enough, to be a real alcoholic. You know, so they just let me in, in that room to sit there and lay there and, and, you know, shake, rattle, and roll, and I did, and it was really difficult. I mean, the first two days were really hard, thank God I don't remember those. You know, but those next three days were just awful, and I was, and I went through a full-blown withdrawal, and I never want to forget it. And while I was in there, you know, they had to do this drug and alcohol inventory thing where you got to write down everything that you used and drank and who you used and drank it with and all that stuff and amounts and whatnot. And, and so, I, you know, and I, I did all that while I was in a blackout. And so about, you know, several days later, I was in there 10 days, you know, they, they got some kind of code called in the treatment center and all the male counselors were taking off their ties and they're rolling up their sleeves and taking off their jackets and they're running. I said, well, what's going on? And he said, your sister's here. And she's really angry with you. Yeah, because when I filled out that little youth survey, you know, I put her youth down there with mine. And so they called my mom and they said, you know, you got, you, we know you got one sick kid, but you know, you've got two, you might want to bring the other one in too. And so she was checking in the same treatment center I was in and, you know, and I saw her ten days later and she said, you know, you might not want to go to sleep. Yeah, it's her fault that I'm in here. And so I didn't sleep for the last 20 days of my treatment. And they cut me in there over the holidays. They knew if they let me out of there, I was going to drink. You know, I I spent 40 days in Glendale Hospital in downtown Cleveland with kids that I would not have associated with otherwise because, you know, they were thugs and addicts and, you know, drug addicts to me. I mean, they were here and alcoholics were here. And I'm not sure where I came up with that. But, you know, and I was in there with all kinds of folks and gangbangers and, you know, people that scared me. And I did everything that I could to not learn a thing while I was in that treatment center. I was just in there to do my time. I thought, if I'm gone for 40 days, surely by the time I get out of here, people are going to feel sorry for me because I've been gone so long. And they just won't be mad at me anymore when I get home and I can go back to drinking the way I need to drink. Well, my sister decided I was, I was getting out of that hospital, and she said, okay, here's the deal. You will not relapse until I get out of here. She said, if you do that, I'll forgive you. I said, okay. She said, you call my people and you get all of our stashes ready? She said, because the day I get out of here, we're going to use. And I said, okay. And so, you know, I called up her people and I called up my people and I got all the stuff that we needed. I got my bottles and I got her whatever it was that she was using at the time. She, you know, my sister would like drop out and go to school and stuff. I'm just tragic decisions on her part. But I got her all kinds of stuff and, and I was I'm eagerly anticipating her getting out of treatment. She got out January 6, 1987. And she came home, and I looked at her, and I was ready to go. And she had a spiritual experience over that last 10 days of treatment, and she wanted to stay sober. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know? I mean, every day I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at my bottles, and my mouth is watering, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, there's relief. You see, because I spent 40 days in treatment, and I didn't do anything with what was in my head. I spent 40 days without drinking. And all of the memories that I had and all the stuff that I did and all the shame and the guilt and the remorse, I had done nothing with it. It was in my head. It was driving me crazy. I was not able to sleep. I could barely take a full breath in. And I was absolutely miserable. 
and I was waiting for her to get out so that I could get some relief because that's what booze had done for me in the past. When she got outside, she had a spiritual experience. You know, she said, you know, we probably ought to go to some of these AA meetings. And I had been to a couple of AA meetings because my mom made me while we were waiting on her to get out of treatment, and we went to some AA meetings. And we got there late. We sat in the back. We wrote notes. We got dates. You know, we made sure that our class was a low rumble underneath, you know, whoever was talking, you know, whether they were speaking at the podium or whether it was some kind of discussion meeting. There were a lot of speaker meetings up there in the north where I was from. And, um... And so we were just in general disruption. And, and you know, the old-timers hated me. They absolutely, they hated me. They hated the fact that I was in their meetings. They would say stuff to me, you know, like, well, you're not an alcoholic, you know. I spilt more on my pie than you drank. And I'd say, well, you know, if you hadn't spilt so much, maybe you'd gotten here sooner. You know, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And, um, and you know, they were convinced that I was an alcoholic. I wasn't convinced that I was alcoholic. You know, they hated the fact that I was coming in late, writing notes, getting dates, seeing a general disruption, and interrupting everybody else's opportunity to get sober. And finally, on March, well, I don't know the exact date, it was a couple of days before March 15th, which is my sobriety date, there was an old timer, his name was Mac, and Mac walked up and walked, and Mac was one of these guys who he took up way more room than his physical body did. He walked into a room and he had one of these big booming voices and he stood with his chest all puffed out and everything he said had a big arm movement that went with it. And he was just one of, you know, I thought he was president of AA and so did he. And, and he told me after a meeting, he said, look, I am sick and tired of you coming into these meetings late, sitting in the back, being a disruption, screwing up my meeting. People are here to save their lives. He said, do you think that you're an alcoholic? That's a tough question. You know, do you think that you're an alcoholic? And I said, well, and he said, do you, have you tried to control your drinking? And I said, what do you mean? He said, have you tried to drink and, and stop abruptly and say stop? And I'm thinking, well, no. You know, I take the top off a bottle, throw the top away, and I drink until I pass out. You know, I can keep about a fifth of liquor down and... And I'm good. And I, I said, no, I've never tried that. And he said, just step down to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. He said, try it more than once. He said, try to drink a little bit and then stop abruptly. He said, here's the deal. If it doesn't work, you come back here. But you come back with a new attitude. And if it does work, I never want to see you again. And then he gave me five bucks just to get me started. And so I, you know, I went up to my sister, and I'm like, you know, hey, we'll get your five bucks from this guy. We're out of here. And on March 14th, 1987, my sister and I relapsed. And I had, I had my formula. See, I was going to get that feeling I got that first time I drank. I was going to get that two minutes. Only I thought, okay, if I could control my drinking the way these people are talking about controlling my drinking, maybe it'll last more than two minutes. I mean, how cool would that be? To feel that good for a really long time. That's what I was trying to do the entire time anyway. I just kept overshooting my mark. And so I wasn't sure where my mark was. So I thought if I tried it, maybe this is it. I'm going to try to control my drinking. I know I can. I know I can. So I was going to have three shots and two beers. And I did. Because to me that was moderate drinking. So I had three shots and two beers. And, you know, I hadn't had anything to drink. 
since the Friday after Thanksgiving in November. So three shots and two beers, and boy, I got a great buzz. I mean, I sat there, that feeling came over me, and I was, I, you know, maybe just a, a little bit beyond buzz, but I had drank a while, and I sat there, and I thought, you know, this is all right. This is okay. This is a good feeling. I just want to stay right here. And I thought, I wonder if I just had one more shot, if I could feel a little bit better. I thought I could. So I had one more shot, and I sat there. You know, the sky didn't fall in. The lightning struck me dead. Felt pretty good. And then I thought, I that one more would just pop this off. And it was one more, and it was one more, and it was one more. And I could not stop myself. And you know what I did? I walked up that street. I got in that car. I went to that house where those people who lived, who lived there scared me. I grabbed a bottle on my way out the door. I threw away the pack. I sat with my back against the wall. And things happened to me that night that had not happened to me since I had had that last drink right after Thanksgiving. And I came to that next morning, and I thought, I do not want to live this way. I do not want to live this way. I had had a short period of time without having booze in my system and without having to create new horror. I do not want to live this way. You see, I wasn't afraid of dying, you guys. That was the deal. I was not afraid of dying. You know, kill me, okay. At least it's over. But do not, please don't make me live like this. Because I was young and I was healthy and I had years of it left in me. I was sure of it. So I walked back into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, March 15, 1987, which is still my sobriety date today. And when I walked back into that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got there on time. I sat in the middle and I didn't say anything to anybody, even even though there was kind of a cute guy there. And before I left that meeting, you know, Mac, Mac came up and he said, Well, how'd you do? I said, It didn't work. And he said, Okay. Well, we're going to get busy then. See, what I didn't know is all that time that I was being a general disruption in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and they were trying to figure out what in the world they were going to do with a 15-year-old, they weren't sure if they were going to sponsor me, parent me. They just didn't know. They just didn't know what they were going to do with me. They, they were having meetings and they were trying to figure out, you know, who, who was going to be assigned to me to sponsor me. You know, because it was going to take a very special soul and they knew that. And he said, well, you're not going to leave this room tonight without a sponsor. And I said, well... What am I supposed to do? He said, ask the women in here to sponsor you. And I went to every woman in that room and I said, I'm not allowed to leave this meeting without a sponsor. Will you sponsor me? And every one of them said, no, I won't do that. It wasn't I can't. It wasn't I have too many. It wasn't I don't have enough time. It wasn't I'm overwhelmed. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was no, I won't. And there were several, there were several women in that room that night. And I asked every single one of them, and none of them would do it except one. And I wasn't asking her, folks. I was not asking her. Okay? She was old. She was mean. She used to argue with everybody else. Her name was Jane. She had gray hair. She shook. She smoked cigarettes. And she always had a smart answer for everything for everybody. And I was not asking her because I didn't like her. And I went to leave that meeting that night, and Matt said, did you get a sponsor yet? And I said, no, nobody in here will sponsor me. And he said, I know one woman who will. See, because they had already decided that she was going to be my sponsor. Okay? I didn't know that. But they had decided that she was going to be my sponsor. And so, you know, I said, I said I'm said, i not asking her. 
And he said, I didn't tell you you had a choice. And you see, measurable grace. There are periods in my life where there is measurable grace. And the level of willingness that I had on March 15, 1987, to follow instructions, even though everything in my head was screaming, ain't no way, that's not what came out of my mouth. Measurable grace and the amount of willingness that I had, because it wasn't coming from in here. You see, this was so crashed up, there wasn't room for God or good stuff in here. It was, it was, it was a gift that God gave me to just be willing to do a couple of things that I was asked to do. And I walked up to Dana and I said, will you stop me and look at me? And she said, why should I? And I said, something to the effect of, because I need to stop drinking and I don't know how. And you know how to do that. I need to learn how to work this program. She said, okay. She said, you will not ask me why, ever. You will only ask me how. You'll go to a meeting every night. There will be somebody there to get you. You will call me every day. You will find that copy of that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous you got at that stupid treatment center you wasted 40 days in. You will dust it off, and you will read assignments that I give you. And instead of saying, you know, none of that, thank you, I said, okay. You know, and there are, there are these old-timers who used to show up every single day at my house at 7 o'clock in the evening because all of our meetings in those, in those areas were, you know, 8 o'clock, 8.30 at night. And in the little town that I was living in, you had to drive half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour most nights to get to a meeting. So these guys would roll into my driveway at 7 o'clock at night and they'd be sitting out there. And there was always more than one of them. And they'd be sitting in there drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and laughing and telling jokes. And, and I would be standing on my front porch like this. You see, I didn't want to get in that car, but I didn't want to live like that anymore either. But going to Alcoholics Anonymous to me is not something that I ever wanted to do. And I would stand on that porch, 15 years old, in all of the rebellion that I could muster, and I would stare at these old-timers sitting in my driveway in these great big cars that kind of floated down the road, you know, big Ford LTD models, you know. And I would just stand there and I would think, I'm not going to a meeting tonight. You can't make me. And sometimes I'd stand there long enough that I would make us late to get to an 8 o'clock meeting. So we'd have to drive a little bit further and go to an 8.30. And then I'd have to go to the stupid donut shop afterwards, and I wasn't allowed to talk when I was sitting at the donut shop because they told me I didn't have anything to offer. You know, until you have some recovery to offer to the conversation, you don't get to have input. And I wasn't allowed to make comments in meetings, and I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody, and all I was allowed to do was get in that car, go to a meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous, sit there, shut up, go to the coffee shop, pay my 35 cents, drink a nasty cup of coffee because I didn't even like coffee yet. Um... And hang out with these with these giants of recovery. I mean, these guys were something, you know. They were something. I hope to God that nobody looks at me at 17 years sober and thinks that I'm as good as I looked at those guys and thought they were. You know, some of these guys had 15 years of sobriety. A couple of them had like 25. 
Yeah, I was hanging out with John today. He just celebrated his 25th, and I thought, I thought these guys were really something, you know? And John's just a regular guy. He's been working this tail off the stage over for 25 years, but I thought that these people were just absolutely everything. And you know what they were? They were members of Alcoholics Anonymous who were still going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous after many years of recovery. They still worked at the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were willing to inconvenience themselves to drive from towns that were 15 and 20 miles away from mine to come and pick up an ungrateful 15-year-old who was going to give him grief all night. Take me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, allow me to hang out at the donut shop with them, and talk about recovery so I can learn a little something. Now, if that's not spiritual living, I don't know what is. You know, they were giving me things that I never knew I wanted, and they were giving me things that I never knew I needed. They were giving me love. They were giving me acceptance. They were giving me a place to be on Friday and Saturday night. You know, they taught me how to play stage. They taught me how to drink coffee. They taught me how to smoke cigarettes. They taught me really important things. Really important things. Yeah, there was a club in downtown Cleveland. I'm not real sure how I got introduced to this club the first time, but it's called the One Day at a Time Club, and it's in a pretty rough neighborhood. Tim probably knows where it's at. And I used to go down there and hang out with these folks. You know, I don't have any idea how I meet these people in AA. You know, I just go to all kinds of meetings, and before you know it, I'm in a new place that I've never been before, and places that would scare my mama, but I knew it was okay because it's still the people like you. And I'd go down into this smoky basement, and they'd sit down there and, you know, some old guy would get up and let me have his chair, and we'd be sitting down there playing stage, and some guy would be teaching me how to live life through a stage game. Talking to me about, you know, you're not, you're not always going to know what other people are holding in their hand, and sometimes you just, you know, you just got to trust it, and you got to do the best you can with what you got. And, you know, and they were teaching me how to live life and how to do the things I needed to do through playing the game of stage. And here's the deal. I wanted... I always bring the weather with me. Or God sends it after me. Let's just say it that way. We'll leave the power where it's supposed to be. I wanted, at some point in my recovery, to participate in the conversation at the donut shop. Okay? The only way to participate in the conversation at the donut shop was to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, they were giving me the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they were allowing me to hang out with them. They were teaching me how to play spades. They were teaching me how to smoke and how to drink coffee. I was getting the fellowship, and I am so grateful. At some point, I didn't take a step back, look around my life, and say, you are 16 years old, and your best friends are 65-year-old men who have been sober for an average of 20 years. I mean, thank God. Because I needed every single one of you old-timers. I needed you guys to be sitting in my driveway at 7 o'clock and sit there until my indignant little butt would get in the car with you. I needed, at some point, to hear the joke from the beginning, which meant that I had to get in the car as soon as you pulled in the driveway and not stall on my front porch. And then I wanted to be part of that conversation. And in order to do that, I had to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I walked up to Jane and I said, okay, Jane, I'm ready. i got to work these steps. It was all about belonging, you see. I want to work these steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and the other thing that was going on for me is that, you know, my head had not stopped screaming for one moment. 
Okay, all of that stuff that happened to me, all that stuff that I chose to participate in, all of the things that I saw that I should have never seen, and I wish today that I had never seen a lot of that stuff, it was still up there, and I had not done anything with it. And I was sober a couple of months, and I just wanted that to stop. And so I called her, I'm like, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And she said, you're not ready to work the steps of alcohol. Isn't that what I said, what do you mean? That's what you're supposed to do. And she said, no. She said, you see that sign up there? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you need to figure out what those things are. And they were the four absolutes which were left over from the Oxford group, the four spiritual principles. Tim actually mentioned them last night when he was talking about the qualities that his second wife brought and that she lost due to his alcoholism. You know, they were love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness, you know. We have those things until we hit alcoholism, and then those things are sucked out of our souls. And I said, what do you have to find out there? She said, you don't know what those things are. And I knew in my heart that she was right. She said, go figure it out. And you know, so I went to the dictionary. You know, I know how to find out what words mean. I went to the dictionary, and I looked them all up. You know, love to care for. Cheap, huh? Unselfishness, putting others' needs first. You know, so I got definitions for these things. I went back to Dana, so I figured it out, and I wrote on my definitions, and she said, that's not it. And I said, look this out of the dictionary. And she said, that's not it. Keep looking. And you know, something magical happened. I got the phone numbers from all those old-timers who were assigned different days of the week with me. You know, it was like, okay, I got Deb on Monday. You got her on Tuesday. That's good. So I can't take her two days in a row. And I had their phone numbers, you see. And I picked up the phone and I said, do you think that maybe we could find one of those little early meetings and maybe you could pick me up early and we could go to that because that's a discussion meeting before we go to the speaker meeting. And they said, well, what for? And I said, I got to figure out these four absolute thoughts because I thought maybe I'd get there and ask some folks. See, because I had already asked them and they wouldn't tell me. I figured they didn't know. I'm not sure how I thought they were sober all that time, but I, just, I thought, well, okay, they don't know. And so I went to lots of extra meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was talking to people about what the four absolutes were. You know, and a lot of people in my area, they, they, I did not know this at the time, but they were instructed to not answer me very well. Because Jane believed a whole lot in the process, not necessarily the result. And so, you know, I was going to all these meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. I was talking to people about what the four absolutes were, and I got the fact that they were spiritual principles. But, you know, what did that mean to me? I mean, I was two months sober, you know. I was absolutely batshit crazy and yeah, spiritual principles, whatever, man. And Mac, the guy who kicked me out of Alcoholics Anonymous, I walked up to Mac and he still wasn't talking to me. I, he he crazed me a lot. And Mac wasn't talking to me, but I walked up to him anyway and I said, Mac, I got a problem. And he said, I know you do. And I said, I think it's a problem you can help me with. And he said, well, I'm sure that's true. And I said, I don't even know what these four absolutes are. And he said, why? And I said, because I want to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not allowed to until I figure out what these four absolutes are. And he said, why do you want to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, little one? And I said, because I want to get well. I'm not sleeping and I'm crazy and i got to get this stuff out of my head. And you people told me that if I worked the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I could get this stuff out of my head. And he said, okay, here's the deal. He said, the four absolutes, they are. They are spiritual concepts. They're left over from the Oxford groups. And he said, and these are the goals of your recovery. 
these are the things that you're going to put in place of your character defects that you are going to strive to give up in 6 and 7. He said, you see, when you give up all of the ugliness, you have to have something to replace it. He said, and so everything ugly that you've got can be very well covered with love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness. He said that it's not going to be fast. But these are the goals of your recovery. And I said, Matt, I don't think I'm ever, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to use those things. And he said, you will. That's what the steps are for. And I said, okay. So I went around back to Jane. I'm like, Jane, there's a four, you know, there's spiritual principles, there's weapons from the astral groups, and there are the results of recovery. Those are the things I'm going to be striving for. I'm going to replace my character defects with them. And she said, that damn Mac, I knew he'd tell you. And she launched me on a vigorous program of action. And my program of action wasn't something that she made up. It wasn't her rendition of anything. We opened up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there are all kinds of directions in there about how to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not my program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's Tim's program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. There are directions. And she, you know, she walked me through that book, page by page, line by line. She'd give me reading assignments, and she'd hide money in my pages, and then she'd go to her the next day. She said, did you read what I told you to? And I'd lie and say, yes, ma'am. She'd take my book, open it up, and say, no, you didn't, or otherwise you'd be taking this five bucks. You know, and, and she and I, we had this wonderful relationship. You know, I hated her. She detested me, but she was assigned to me, and that's just the way it was. And she walked me through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and when it came to doing the fifth step, I thought, I am not doing my fifth step with her. Do you know what kind of stuff I want I'm not saying that to her. She's old. It'll kill her. I didn't want to be her, her, her demise. You know, so I was all powerful like that when I was real new. And she said, it's time to do your fifth step. I said, well, I'm not going to do it with you. And she said, well, who are you going to do it with? I said, I don't know. I guess you, you could be able to go to a priest. So she said, you're not going to a priest. You're going to take it to me. And I said, but... I and she said, no, listen. She said, somebody on this earth has got to know you 100% through and through and hold you accountable for the things that you do. She said, and how am I supposed to do that if I don't know what you're really made of? And so, you know, I I didn't want to do that. But I said, well, all right, but it's ugly. You're hard on okay. And I sat down and did my fifth step with her, and I, and I walked her through, and we did all these things. And, you know, she wasn't real interested in knowing all the down and dirty details of anything. What she wanted to know was, you know, what were the character defects that fueled that behavior in the first place? What was my part in the resentments that I was holding? You know, what were the fears that were driving me to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate? What, what were the fears in me that was driving all of that really ugly behavior? That's what she wanted to know. You know, she didn't want to know how many men I slept with either, you know, with my permission or without. She didn't want to know all that stuff. She didn't want to know about the things that I had seen that I wish I would have never seen. She wanted to know that it happened. She wanted to know that I participated in it. She wanted to know that I was there, but she didn't want all the details. She wanted to know what was going on in my soul. She wanted to know what my sickness looked like. And you know what? I was absolutely terrified. I was as terrified that day as I was when I was eight years old and did not have alcohol yet. That never went away. Alcohol didn't fix that. Alcohol made me feel okay for about two minutes some of the time until it quit working. But it never fixed what was wrong with me. What was wrong with me is that I was terrified and I had no God to fix it. That's what was wrong with me. Now, I have the disease of alcoholism, and I'll tell you what. 
Some people stand up at these things and they say, I am a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. And I used to think, you've got to be kidding. You know, take that stuff on the road, buddy, because I ain't buying it. You know, but today I am a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic, because here's the deal for me as, a, as me, my opinion, my take on things. Alcoholism brought me to God. I wouldn't have gotten here any other way. My life from birth has been about figuring out a way to survive this disease long enough to get a God that I never knew I wanted and certainly never knew that I needed. And when I walked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with all this God stuff you guys were talking about. I had no idea. I wasn't raised in church. Nobody in my family prayed. I saw somebody before the meeting. The only prayers I ever said is when I was eight years old. On Saturday nights during football season, I'd get on my knees and I would pray that God, a big Cleveland Browns fan, and I would pray that God would help the coaches make really good decisions so that the Cleveland Browns would win their football game the next day. The only prayer I ever said when I was growing up, and it, you know, I probably, somebody on TV said I prayed before every game or something, and so I started doing it. And, uh, and that's the only thing, I didn't know God. I had absolutely no idea that I get to this program and people tell me i got to have a God in order to get well. You know, and I took that to Jane, and I said, I don't know what to do with this stuff. And she said, you know, we're not going to labor at this too long. She said, God, is good orderly direction. I'm going to give it to you. Let's move on. You know, and then she highlighted some of the prayers in the big book. She said, every now and then you're going to get on your knees, you're going to say these things out loud, so I don't care if you understand them or not. Well, there's, you know, step two and three. You know, Jane will restore me to family. And off we went. And that's how I started building a relationship with God, you see, because I knew from what you people had told me that God was playing a role in your recovery. And I knew by spending time with you in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that you guys were living lives that you enjoyed, and I wanted one of those. And you people had told me that if you're working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you cleaned house. And I really, really wanted a clean house. And so I did the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I still do it today. You know, my life today is really kind of amazing. And it's not amazing because... I'm not a millionaire. I don't own, you know, two Lincolns and have a house in the suburbs and all of the, you know, you know, I don't, my life is amazing because when I wake up in the morning, I pray, which I would have never done without program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when it gets to be about lunchtime, I look forward to going to my home group, which is a noon meeting, so I work in the evening. And I get to go in there and I get to hang out with, with spiritual giants on a daily basis and I get to listen to how people are working together to get each other well. You know, and my life is good. You know, I, I graduated high school sober. I graduated college sober. I'm all over halfway through my master's degree sober. I've gotten married and divorced sober, but we're not going to go there. I have been through all kinds of challenges in 17 years of sobriety, all kinds. Things that I have listened to other people say that they've gone, to, gone through, but they drank on their way through it. You know, and I used to think, you know, what's the difference between them and me? You know, why is it that I, I mean, when I, when I start to go through something heavy and I'm looking at all my options and what it is I'm to do next, drinking alcohol is never an option that I lay out on the table. It's just not an option, folks. It's just not there. Drinking at it doesn't solve anything today. I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. Okay? I'm not confused about that. 
I can get confused about all kinds of stuff. You know, sometimes if I read too much spiritual stuff, I'll get confused about God. But I am not confused about the fact that when I put alcohol in my system, I am unable to control the amount that I'm going to drink and what's going to happen once it's in me. I am not confused about that. And so no matter what happens in my life, I survive it today sober because I know that. Okay? I can't stand up here and tell you guys that this is that way and this is that way and this is the way it is and give you guys all kind of boxes to put things in because I'm just not that sure about life right now. I mean, I'm 33 years old. That's one of these guys. Okay? But I am certain that I am an alcoholic. And the only way for me to have a successful life is to not drink alcohol. Everything else stems from that. You know, my father, have I been talking? I have been talking a long time. I'm going to tell you a quick story. If I, well, it's not even that quick. My dad. Just hang in there with me, would you? My father was telling me that he's a, he's a, he's a really big alcoholic these days. And, and Burns said he was looking forward to hearing me talk today because I might give him a little update. Because he and I were on, we were on the same team last Last September, actually, I was the daytime speaker, and he was the nighttime. He's awesome, by the way. Y'all are going to be here tonight, right? And he's saying that, you know, he'd like to go, well, let's on what was going on in my life. And, and here's, here's kind of the snapshot of what's happened with me this year. I am, I've, have I been testing a lot during this talk? I'm okay. Okay, I've had my ass handed to me this year. All kinds of stuff has happened in my life. I've lost friends, made friends, had my heart for I mean, I'm just, woo, figure, okay? My father's very, very sick, okay? He's got, he's got cirrhosis of the liver. You know, he's got gout in both feet, rectally extended abdomen, you know, he's, he's, he's a mess. And that, and that has not changed this year. He's, he's sick. And he's also still drinking. And he and I had a conversation in 1993 that went something like this. He said, I wish that you would just stop trying to have a relationship with me. I don't like you. You don't like me. So why don't you just give it up? Now, I have tried to make amends to this man every which way but loose, and he had never accepted my amends. We had that conversation in 1993, and all the people who loved me after I shared the conversation, they said, let it go. And so I did. I walked away from that relationship with him, and I prayed, and I was able to let him go, and the Al-Anon saved my life, and this one, you know, God love you guys. I need your skills, too. But there was something that was never quite right about it, and I didn't know what was missing. It was like there was one thing that I still had to do, but I didn't know. And you know what happened to me was I was listening to a speaker tape riding in my car one day, and I was listening to um, Reverend Ed. Big guy. He did his little progress thing. Now he's an ordained Methodist preacher sometimes, listen to Reverend Ed's tape, and he was talking about when he, you know, when he had this big thing that he had to forgive this guy for, he said, and, and, and he'd forgiven him, and then he was sitting there, and he realized one day that he'd never told the guy that he forgave him. He said, you know, you got, you got to kind of put that energy back out there sometimes. You know, now, this is just doing it with people that scare you. Like, I'm not going to get you, I'm not going to go, you know, tell these guys that I used to, they used to buy me the bottle every day that I forgive them for all the harm that they did me, but, you know. And I thought, you know what, that's probably what's missing, is that my father, who was buried so deep in his alcoholism, that he he doesn't talk to people. He is completely isolated. He's a recluse. My father does not know that his youngest daughter has reached a point of forgiveness for things that I believe he thinks are probably unforgivable. He 
does not know that I'm okay with what happened in our house when I was growing up. He doesn't know that, I, that I'm there yet. And so, you know, I got on my Harley this summer, and I and, and I, I, I had this, a week, you know, to go do something. And so I got on a Harley, and I, and I, and I rolled up to Ohio. I moved to South Carolina now, but I rolled up to Ohio, and I, and I pulled in to my sister's. Okay, now my sister relapsed with me, but she never got clean again. Okay, so she's still out there. And I rolled into my sister's, and, and she asked me if I'd spend the night, and she's got three kids, and they love their Aunt Deb, and, and uh, they all went rides on my motorcycle, and I stay there for a couple of days, and, and I put my sister on the back of that Harley, and we go riding over to that little town where we grew up, and we go past that big house. You know, and stuff in our household was pretty ugly when we were little. You know, we were absolutely certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that our house was haunted. Okay, and as little kids, we had to believe that because something had to have been going on to make all of this ugliness. And it had to have been a haunted house because we couldn't believe that it was our parents. And anyway, so we go rolling past that house, and I stopped, and she's on the back of a Harley with me, and, and we'd just been riding for a couple hours, and I was in a really good place, you know. And I looked at it, and I said, so what do you think? And she said, I think the house got smaller. And I said, yeah, I think it did. And that street that we used to walk up, you know, past the park and get in the car, you know, that hill is not as steep as it used to be, nor is it as long. You know, and things just got smaller, and I thought, okay. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm going to go have lunch with him tomorrow. And she goes, oh, my God, why are you doing that? And I said, because he needs to know that I've forgiven him. And she said, whatever. And so I had a conversation with her on the telephone the next day. And, and, and I said, you know, I said, I'm real scared about calling him. And she said, you know, she said, I've had a couple of occasions in the last 10 years to sit at his kitchen table, drink several pots of coffee, and talk with him about things that didn't piss him off, that didn't upset him. And he and I were able to actually enjoy the fact that we were in the same room. She said, I think it's happened three times in ten years, but there's a possibility that it could go better than what you think it will. She said, and I also think that you're going to realize that he got smaller, too. And so I called my dad, and, you know, and I'm not going to go through all of the details with you, but before I called him, I got on my knees and I said, God, here's the deal. I'm going to do this thing because I think that, it, I think that it's your will for me. And if it is, I'm going to need some additional clarity. Because when he starts throwing out zingers, I want to know what their intention is so that I don't bite and we don't fight. And then I'm going to need a little extra humility because it's not necessarily one of my strong suits anyway. My boyfriend says I wake up in the morning signing my own autograph, but that's a whole other topic. I said I'm going to need a little extra humility because when I see these things coming, I need to be able to respond with humility. Because I need him to know that I love him and that I forgive him, and that's what this is about. And, you know, God gave me an amazing amount of humility, and he gave me an amazing amount of clarity, and those two things worked together for me that day. You know, when I called him and invited him to go to lunch, he, you know, one of his questions was, why? You hungry? You poor? You need a meal? And I said, no. I'll buy. So he finally agreed to meet me for lunch, and, and you know, he just said some really ugly things, and for 45 minutes, he just, he was so angry, you know, and he had that look on his face that he always had, and his bottom teeth were showing, and he was just, and he, you know, I put a little finger, and he was pointing it and doing this thing, and, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm looking at him, and I said, he is one of the sickest men I've ever seen in my life. And God allowed me to see him for who he was, not for who he used to be to me. 
And I prayed the entire time. I had an inner dialogue with God going on, and I said, you know what, God, if this is supposed to happen, you're going to have to give me the words, you're going to have to give me the actions, and you're going to have to wipe this look off my face. You know, because when people come at me like that, I try to, you know, I, I, I have a tendency to respond back to them, and I, and you know, 45 minutes, we were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and he said some really awful things, and I said, you know, this is one of my favorite lines, that whole thing that God gave me. You know, it's, you know, if I saw it that way, too, I'd probably be as angry as you are. But that's just not how I see that. You know, now, what are you going to grab onto to lash out on that? You know, but I had, we had one of those 45 minutes of this stuff. And finally, he gave up. And we talked about things that didn't matter. And we finished lunch, and we had been sitting there for two hours. And we got up to leave. And he asked me, he said, you know, why, why are you here really? And I said, because I want you to know that I have forgiven you. And I forgave you a long time ago. I just never told you that. And he said, well, la dee People are going to be mad at me the day I die. And I said, that may be true for you, but I want you to know that your, your youngest daughter is no longer on that list. And he said, would you like to go to the park and sit at one of the picnic tables and continue to talk for a while? And I said, sure. And I went and I sat with him for an hour, and I listened to him tell me about the things that mattered to him. You know, he wanted to make sure that I was still a Democrat, which I am. He wanted to make sure that I was still brown skin, which I am. He wanted to make sure that I finished that education. He wouldn't help me pay for it, and I assured him that I did. And, um, and then I listened to him talk to things that mattered to him, and he, you know, told me that I could join the Daughters of the American Revolution if I wanted to because he had done some homework, and, you know, by God, he had one of those family members that were in that deal. So I told my check-in to it, which I have. And um, when we got up to leave, he said, well, if you're not going to hug me, it wasn't worth coming for. And I said, I'll hug you. And he had tears in his eyes, and he hugged me. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm sure if I knew you better, I'd be really proud of you. And I said, you would. There were amazing people put in my life when I needed really amazing things to happen for me. And you know, people, I got sober on the shoulders of giants. I got sober with people who didn't mind being inconvenienced. I got sober because people spent time with me, and they loved me when I was completely unlovable and when I couldn't give it back. Okay? I got sober by people who had over 10 years of sobriety and hadn't stopped working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got sober working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is outlined in the book called Alcoholics Anonymous. There are directions in there. If your head is screaming and you want it to stop, I suggest that program, not yours. I am very, very grateful to be here this weekend. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for sitting so still, even though I've just run my jibs a little too long. I'm going to get off this stage, and please, if you all think of me later, I hope you know that I am a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.